0: You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Today, we have a new guest. Her name is Michelle and Michelle has graciously agreed to come on and share her story of generational addiction and trauma and the steps she has taken to heal from the disease of addictions imprint on her life. You will hear lots about the different levels of recovery many of us go through because as we know, we never graduate on this recovery journey. Let's hear from Michelle. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. I'm excited, Michelle, to have you with me today uh, to talk about your journey in recovery. We'll wet our whistle and start with whatever part of your story you want to begin with, Miss Michelle.
1: Thank you, Maggie. I really appreciate the work that you're doing in this space, in the the amount of service and contribution. I just really appreciate a how you show up, how you're willing to be vulnerable, and how you make space for the different stories. Because each of us uh, contributes to this to the warp and weft of the tapestry, where we're weaving as complex humans. So i I come from this fully loaded as a child a grandchild, a daughter, a sister, an aunt, a mother, a grandmother. Um, I am fully loaded with um, ancestral trauma, and uh, this came very clear to me. Uh, I don't know if you ever did any of the retreats on Pirot's Island. No, I never got the chance. No. Yes, well, I got to go there, and boy, were my eyes open. I did a genogram in the late 80s, and I realized, without a doubt, women in my family married alcoholics or people with an addiction. Uh, And and I was absolutely horrified and on reflection had found myself in the same space. Plus, I had a father who was an alcoholic and a mother who was, um, I would loosely term, a rageaholic. And I don't wish to tell their stories other than my father did find um, AA in the last 10 years of his life. And I'll touch on that a bit later. But I have been a 12-stepper since the late 80s and right through to this century.
0: I wonder as a youngster, before you even did the genogram, growing up in that environment, if you'd be willing to share at what age you knew something was off in your home.
1: That is an awesome question. And I've done a lot of work around this with adult child of alcoholics. That's really opened my eyes. And it's a fabulous question because I had this situation where my dad was my hero and he was working four jobs to pay for a house. In essence, from the outside looking in, in our house, it was violent. It was Angry, and my mother was an extremely angry person, and I can understand having them in, in the alcoholic relationships. Um, and of course, it was the '60s, so everything had to look perfect. But after my father left, again, I repeat, it, it's the '60s. I was dubbed as coming from a broken home, would be pregnant at 13. My brother and I were delinquents, and I found it's safer to say my father was dead mm. than my parents were separated. And that really left a residue of toxic shame for me because my father was my hero. He he loved and adored me. Um, and I had the incongruencies of, of watching this wonderful man um, when he was drunk become violent, but also watching my mother instigate these violent situations and I know from between three and eight years old I was breaking up adult physical fights. Well, I was too, probably too young to realize, but I can tell you this. I love to be in anybody else's home in the neighborhood. And I was one of the oldest kids. So I made myself an indispensable babysitter. Um, I was very articulate. So these poor, lonely suburban women had someone to talk to. Um, but I hated to be in my house. And my mother was one of the most popular women in the neighborhood. She could, she could um, tailor Ball gowns. She was charming. She was beautiful. She looked like she had it all. That was my normal. So I I love to be in other people's houses, but I wasn't sure. I, well, I didn't even think about whether they were different from mine. I was just glad to escape the vipers nest. So that's a really interesting
0: perspective because many times I hear from clients and people I've worked with over the decades that when they went to other people's homes is when they realized, wow, this is so different. They were looking for the same things in their home that weren't in this home. And yet there was, for you, more a sense of escapism and just a lightness of not being in the home rather than a comparison.
1: Absolutely. And one of the Al-Anon recovery slogans, um, anger is just one letter short of danger and I lived in a a physically violent household. Now I must qualify this, my brother did not live in that household. He physically lived there, but when we had conversations as adults, as parents, he has no recollection of any of that type of thing. He, you know, he very much grew up a very loved, adored child and protected child. That was not my experience.
0: That also I, speaks to something very powerful, Michelle, right? That even though there may be five people in a home, everyone's perspective and
1: experience is unique to them. Absolutely. But feelings aren't sex because my brother... Um, has wrestles terribly with addiction and so do so so do some some or all of his sons um so i am very careful um not to look back by staring and i and i work really hard to keep my mind and heart quiet because um you know, there's nothing I could do about that because I was his big sister. So I pretty much raised him when my mom couldn't cope or my parents were fighting or my dad left when I was eight. So I started parenting my parent. Um, I was the babysitter. I was even cooking meals and doing laundry at eight years old. Having had um, relationships break down, my mother was just being human. Um, But for me as a child, what I took away from that, and this feeds a bit into dissociation and adult children's work, was I became a latchkey kid because she eventually got a job. And um, I thought of people like the mother in Lassie, the actress June Lockhart or Lost in Space. I went home to that mother in the afternoons. Not the tired one who came in who was really angry. Um, I came home to that one. Now, again, my mother was only being human. And, of course, I'm watching these TV shows that are, you know, really old, (laughs) from the 50s when they wanted women to be like that. Well, I'm sure my mother felt quite betrayed that, you know, her beautiful home and life, you know, got all upended. But my parents were in the relationship of insanity. I mean, that literally is, is what I've... I've come to learn and and they just were not equipped to be parents and they didn't they also came from dysfunctional homes so the
0: generational legacies continue through the home and through the families
1: I would say generational trauma um, my maternal side my mother's side I know very little about I have no maternal health I have um, I, a huge disconnect and of course when my parents broke up there was a huge disconnect from the paternal family who were very very clannish and continued to show up Um, but my mother kept kept us distant so although my childhood and teenagehood were were minefields of trauma and violence I'm so grateful because those experiences I was awake and aware and met head on. I went and got help. But given our childhoods and how we were raised, uh, I came out of that um, like a warrior. I, you know, i very concerned about um, single parents, children, very concerned about social inequities. Um, yeah, for sure.
0: This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. So you, you shared, Michelle, that you got help, and you also just kind of came out with a mission. It sounds like you almost were indoctrinated by your experience to go in the courses of which you did. But back up to the help you got. You know, you're back in the 60s, divorced parents. What type of help were you exposed to or able to get at that point in your
1: life? Well, interestingly enough, I, I to be frank, there, there was no help in the 60s for it for women and children, we, I'm pretty sure we were still seen as chattels or, you know, seen and not heard. But I did have the opportunity, uh, well, A, there was an advertising program that said girls could do anything. So rather than signing up for secretarial courses and home economics courses, I was signing up for metal work and woodwork. Yeah. Um, we had a new neighbor move into the, into the neighborhood and her and her husband were physiotherapists and she had met him at you know, at university and she was running his practice and raising his children. So she was one of the homes that I would migrate over to, to help with babysitting and things. And of course, you know, if you're educated and you're out in the work world, suddenly you're home with two kids Mm -hmm. (laughs) before kindy and all that kind of thing was available. Um, you know, you were really glad of any quality company. And I was quality company, you know, I was curious, I was engaged and I was so happy to be there. Um, She gave me some books like The Naked Ape and Anne Rand. And so my whole um, books were my escape. The library at school was my escape. I'm pretty, pretty um, typical. Um, But she gave me books that challenged my mind and made me intellectually curious. Now, I was also um, in the jurisdiction that I was in, I could get my driver's license at 15, which I did uh, by hook or by crook, signed my mother's uh, signature on that one um, because she, Wanted me isolated, right? Sure. Um, and ended up racing cars and being out with people where I was. I, I got the chance to work on on a vintage car, and I got to work on hot rods, and I got to race cars. And so I was not only intellectually curious; I was also a risk taker. When I met my first husband, um, I I had um, gotten a passport when I was fourteen because I'd been on a school trip. And I was about to start traveling. And when I met my first husband, he followed me around and I'm like, I, I do not want to get married. I do not want children. I want to own my own home and I want my own business. Um, and he's like, okay. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm not even 18 yet. So I'm too young. So <laughs> you know, and and but he literally was my friend. He didn't push any relationship stuff. Actually, kept me safe because i I had left the country with three hundred dollars and a passport and one of those global explorer tickets that you could get from BA and go around the world. You just had to keep going. I mean, if one of my daughters had left with a passport and three hundred dollars, I would be constantly checking on her. Right? <laughs> How things change, right? Exactly. So, um, so I already made it very clear that I saw marriage as a cesspit, a trap, and I was not doing that until I got to university. You know, I needed to, very controlling. What what you do when you're when you're used to living in drama and in dangerous situations, you control what you can, <laughs> right? Um, but it served so, you well. I mean, in fairness, Michelle, one of the
0: things I think works so counterintuitively in recovery is those things that work us work well for us to survive those insanities and those challenges get to a point where they become a liability, but they do work for a long time.
1: Absolutely. Now, my first husband died before we were married 10 years. So there I had had this quality man, quality father of my children, and suddenly he's gone and I'm in another crisis. So what do I do? I revert to my normal, which was to marry an alcoholic. I mean, hey. So what you, what I'm hearing is he
0: was not an alcoholic, your first husband?
1: No, no. He was very healthy. If anything, my biggest issues was um, dealing with the boredom of normal.
0: That's an important piece to talk about, Michelle, because I don't think people realize that that can be very much a trap that we fall into when we've had... Any kind of trauma and chaos around addiction in families of origin, what is normal and how do you cope without that roller coaster when that's your norm?
1: Absolutely. Now I've told you as a latched key kid you know watching Lassie and Lost in Space with that wonderful June Lockhart who played the mother I wanted to be a June Lockhart but I can tell you I was struggling (laughs) Um, you know to be to be the perfect homemaker and um, I was growing herbs and canning I was spinning wool and uh, doing all sorts of fun things. So I, I really enjoyed learning all those things, but they just weren't enough. So a- after he died, of course, what do I do? I end up marrying an alcoholic. Um, so I was back to, to normal. And the gift of that relationship was it 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 banged me out of my abyss and into al mm. And Al-Anon... Um, gave me uh, a huge pickup because I then I no, let me be very honest. I went in to get him sober. I know it's so important to say this because you know if you have if you if you want to have that source of comfort and progress, it's really important to remember what Ali Weasel once advised. Whoever survives a test, whatever it may be, must tell the story. That's her duty. So let me tell you, I was an Al-Anon who went in to get him sober, and it did not work. It just about made me crack up. So, um, and it it took a stupendous crisis um, for that all to collapse under me. Uh, So... um, you know, al my first tour of duty in there was for all the wrong reasons, doing all the wrong stuff. And in the in the late 80s, early 90s, a sponsorship wasn't a thing. I know it's part of the program, but I, there were no sponsors. I never even heard the word other than in the preamble and in in those types of things. So um that marriage and Al-Anon, Gave me such a shake up. and what's really interesting is this is before my father went into um, AA, and he was we were living on different sides of the world, and I did not know until after he died, uh, ten or eleven years later. But literally um, around the same time, I was in Al Anon, he was in AA, and we're on different sides of the world. We're not even speaking to each other. So after he died, and I accepted the invitation to go and scatter his ashes that was when I learned that he had been an AA and I was so happy now the other side because this is worth the telling my dad his partner was the image of my mother without the rage looks like her was all the beautiful parts of my mother and she had a daughter named Michelle and a and a son named my brother's name, plus one other, which was a bit different. And her daughter also had three children about the same ages of mine. So my father actually, in the last sort of 10 or 12 years of his life, recreated his happy family, was well-loved, well-celebrated, and he was sober. And let me tell you, that was another bottom for me because I was so happy for him and I was so freaking angry for me. I
0: so appreciate Michelle's authenticity and honesty in sharing her motivation for attending Al-Anon the first time. Many of us find our way into the rooms, out of love and best intention, but to look for solutions to change someone else. And we soon come to find out that's not within our wheelhouse or control. I'm always humbled by the listeners who choose to download the podcast And I appreciate your support. I want to encourage you that if you know someone who loves someone with this disease, who could benefit from hearing these stories, let them know about the podcast. Come back next week and Michelle will share more of her journey in recovery. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, EmbraceFamilyRecovery.com This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.